When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorne, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Ritter, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. You're listening to Paranoid Styles. What you hear tonight does not necessarily reflect my views, our beliefs, our religion, nor those of WWCR. Alright, Paranoid Styles, we're about to get medieval on your ass. Uh, episode 4. This one, uh, this one should be interesting. Hopefully, it's all interesting. But tonight, I guess we're really going to continue with the medieval world, where we kind of left off last time at the beginning of the medieval world. So here we are. Of course, uh, Paranoid Styles. We're continuing our exploration of the history of conspiracy theory and where certain memes and tropes come from. Mm-hmm. And the one we're going to talk about tonight mostly is uh, the blood libel. Blood libel, and I'll say this again, I'm sure, is the trope or meme that you hear in a lot of conspiracy theories today. Would you agree with that assessment? Like it kind of just has become a permutation? Yeah, because uh, I think we really saw this stuff repopularized by the satanic panic right. of the 80s and early 90s. And... Uh, the current revival of those satanic panic memes really stem from that same bloodline. So to speak. Yeah. Um, and then now QAnon. So you guys will see, if you've listened to Conspiracy Normal for a long time, listen to this podcast for a long time, you know kind of what we're talking about. Um, but before we get into that... Let's talk about just like the medieval world mm-hmm. in and of itself. Let's get a little bit of context as to the world that we're dealing with. Okay. Because um, last time we left you with the Greco-Roman world. Yeah. Um, but now we are getting into uh, the Christian world. Every country in Europe, every nation was Roman Catholic 
back in the medieval world, um, except you had the the Eastern Orthodox as well. And won't mention that as much in this, but mostly what we're going to be talking about is Western Europe. Um, I may touch on some things that happened, but maybe later on, because when we talk about uh, blood libel. So the medieval world, um, you could really categorize it as a pretty brutal place. People live these kind of short and really brutish lives. Um, It's said that if you were 40 years old, you were probably a pretty old person by then. Dang, I I would say, yo, I mean, hey, I'd I'd probably be like ancient for, you know, (laughs) for these people. So you're talking about a world that's uh, kind of beset by... At first, barbarian invasion, and then that kind of dies down, and then you're just beset with just like this everyday drudgery of most most people most at the people. time were peasants, right? Let's but just there is ninety eight percent of people in medieval Europe were peasants. There is an, uh, a rich intellectual culture that's going on, uh, right? You know, within within the church, though, and that's what you know most knowledge creation and management is limited to yeah but we're talking about most people are living pretty short lives and most people are pretty miserable and they are very prone to things like mass hysteria and very prone to things like disease and you know this is the time the 1300s is the time of the black death which rages all across the continent all across the world really or at least the old world um, and these are factors that are going to come into play when people are looking for someone to blame mm. for their problems and their issues. Okay. So you have events such as the crusades and you've got constant warfare. Well, I'll put it this way for a brief period of time in about the 1100s, 1200s, things are actually getting pretty well. Things are pretty good. Um, things are kind of stable. The climate is 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 decent. And then you have this thing that climate scientists call the little ice age. Mm-hmm. And about the 1300s and the 1400s, and it may even last all the way until the 18th century. You kind of gradually just come out of it. But just think about the fact that in the 1200s, wine is being produced in England, which is not a place that you normally associate wine with. You would associate that with Italy and the Mediterranean and these type of things. So the climate radically changes. When the climate radically changes, you get things like disease and you get then the Black Death and and these type of things. And in the 1300s and the 1400s, you've got this almost constant warfare between England and between France and the Hundred Years' War. So this adds even more to the misery when you've got basically raving bands of marauders coming in and and just basically killing you. So this adds to kind of like the religious fervor of the day. Yeah. And people begin to to try to to seek answers. People are very preoccupied with the other world because they're all going there pretty soon, it looks like. And then we get, you know, we get to the 1400s and things start to improve the Renaissance and, you know, but we'll talk about, we'll, we'll move into the modern world probably in the next episode. But one of the things I wanted to touch on before we really get into the blood libel stuff, and I thought this was important talking about mass hysteria is this thing called the dancing mania. Okay. 
and also known as the Dancing Plague. And some people call this St. Vitus's Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that's actually very famous. These were breakouts of people just um, doing these kind of like really rhythmic dances. And they would travel from place to place. And they would... Uh, get more people to join them. So it became just this, just this huge movement even of people known as the dancing plague. It's something that occurs in Aachen in Germany in 1378 firstly, and it persists for literally centuries. So this doesn't even end with the, um, with the medieval world necessarily. And it's something that, as I said, is explained as a mass hysteria brought on by the stresses of everyday life. Okay. And of course, musicians come in and start um, playing with them too, with people uh, dancing. And a lot of this explanations between mass hysteria that this was some kind of just a way to deal with just everything that's going on for these people, and they had to express it in some kind of way. Um, also, too, interestingly enough, um, some people look at this and say that there's probably ergot poisoning, which is a hallucinogen, that you've got this, uh, the bread is contaminated with this, this mold called ergot, and these people are eating this, and they are um, basically acting in this kind of like really crazy way, okay? And this was known as St. Anthony's Fire, mm-hmm. was ergot. So you're seeing a lot of like references to saints here, St. Saint Vida, St. Anthony. Uh, this is part of their their religious makeup at the time. And there's a, still others that think this is, might have been an ancient pagan religious cult, that this is a survival of this. Mm-hmm. And they kind of use these dances as some kind of cover to preserve these ancient right. ways of, of belief. I wonder how much of this is like a pathologization of these things from authorities who look down on on this type of activity yeah it maybe it wasn't as crazy as wood got in, entered into the record about it and how it was cast but yeah but there's a lot going on here that we're gonna see you know as far as just the ideas of mass hysteria um, are definitely going to influence the development of conspiracy theory and it's still something that goes on today we think about these waves of popularization of conspiracy theory uh, through the lens of some kind of mass hysteria. And then these ideas of, of, you know, ain't hidden ancient pagan religious cults um, that that's still alive and well today. Speculation about that stuff. Right. And it also is indicative of the religious fervor. Yeah. In Western Europe in this time period, um, which you have a lot of, and this is something that, as we're going to move into this discussion of the blood libel, you're going to see again and again. So kind of this mixture of religious fervor and this kind of mass hysteria. Also, with all the things that are going on and all the pressures in the world, this brutal world that you live in, you begin to try to find, well, there must be a reason this is happening. There must be a reason why we are being treated so badly by God or whatever. We got to find somebody to blame here. So you have, as we talked about last week, you have this, by this time, Judaism and Christianity have totally split. 
I mean, really, it happened 500 years in the, in the past, but what we're talking about. And there are these communities of Jews in Western Europe. Now, there's also communities of Jews in the Arab world as well, but they're treated a little better than what we're going to see start happening in Western Europe. Reason for that is that the Muslims, what they did was they just classified the Jews and the Christians as this different group of like people of the book. So they could have their beliefs, they just had to pay Special some, taxes, some kind yeah. of tax. And this was known as the Demi system. But in Western Europe, and I guess we're going to see the move, more of the move of the Jews in, in Eastern Europe because of what we're going to talk about, they're not treated as well in Western Europe. And what really kind of is the tipping point of this and the really the beginning of this widespread Jewish persecution that is going to lead into rumors like the blood libel are the Crusades. All right, so in the year 1099 or really 1095, one of the popes calls for a crusade to free the Holy Land from the infidel, meaning in this context, meaning the Muslims. And this really begins to awaken the kind of religious fervor of Europe. Mm-hmm. Armies, especially in France, armies are assembled and they begin to ship out to the Holy Land. And this is a process that takes about four or five years. And these armies are stopping in certain parts of Western Europe as they go. And because of this religious fervor, this idea that you got to and in this idea that you got to have somebody to blame for all the terrible things that are happening to us they begin to actually physically attack jewish communities in especially in germany okay and this is where you get the more of the kind of migration into the eastern part of europe where jews feel safer so this is kind of the beginning of that and there's um some really horrible persecutions that take place at this time and so this is the context, this religious fervor brought about by the First Crusade, which is roughly about 1099 to about 1100, and the retaking of Jerusalem by the Crusader armies, which when they get to Jerusalem, they don't only just kill the Muslims that are there, they kill Jews as well. Okay, And later, the Crusaders are even going to be used against orthodox christians in the fourth crusade but that's a whole other story so you have this situation and we kind of enter into blood libel so you've got this group that are this separate group that are in europe they're not integrated into the into the context of european christianity there's also kind of this mystery that surrounds them and surrounds what they do. The ritualism probably seems yeah. strange to Right, right. It's, a lot of it's in different tongues. And right. Totally different than what people are used to. There's also this concept that you have in Roman Catholicism and the very much the idea of the wine and the communion being literal blood of Christ, the transubstantiation. Right. So you've got this kind of obsession with blood. And this is where the idea of the basically what the blood libel is, is that the Jews are accused of killing Christian children, mm-hmm. usually sometime on the Passover, draining them of their blood and using the blood to mix into their matzo balls. Okay, which is this little 
kind of treat that is eaten over the Passover. Okay. So you've got a weird like reverse Christian symbology here where the Christians are literally believe that the wine is the blood of Christ. It's a blasphemy. Transubstantiation and this whole idea. And then you probably have this whole thing where the Jews are seen as like kind of um, leeching off the broader community, you know, and you've probably also got all these other tensions because under Roman Catholicism, there's a lot of uh, prohibitions against usury, which is the lending of money and interest. And of course, Jews not being Roman Catholic, they can do this. They can lend money. So there's a lot of social tensions in individual cities and individual towns And you mix it with what is brought up by the crusade, which is just this ultra religion. It becomes this like unholy mix. Yeah. Okay. So we can get into the blood libel and where this actually comes from. Surprisingly enough, there are actually antecedents of this in the ancient world. And a story from a Greek historian named Apion, A-P-I-O-N. He says that the Seleucid king, heirs of Alexander the Great, that rule what was then Syria, Mesopotamia, that area. Okay, there's disagreements with the Jews. And Antiochus, he goes in to actually take over the temple. And he installs his own worship in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which this is something that is going to spark something called the Maccabean Revolt, which is actually going to kick the Greeks out of Judea eventually. And they're going to set up their own kind of little republic. And actually Hanukkah is actually the commemorations, the Festival of Lights, where Antiochus was actually kicked out of Jerusalem. Well, Antiochus, when he gets there, supposedly according to Appian, this Appian guy, he says that there's a when they get to the Holy of Holies, which is the interior of the temple, supposedly where the like Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be or was. Yeah, you guys seen Indiana um, Jones. Yeah. When he gets there, there is supposedly this Greek captive that is in there and he claims that he was fattened up by his Jewish captors so that they could basically sacrifice him as part of the sacrifice and they would actually like drink his blood or eat him or something like that. Now, one thing we have to understand about the, about the historical context of this is that Antiochus doesn't like the Jews or the Jewish leadership and the Jews don't like him. And Appion seems like he's probably an apologist for this Antiochus guy, this King. And he is um, just echoing probably some counter propaganda. Yeah. That, the Greeks probably made up. Okay, well, you know, if you're going to say that I desolated the temple by installing my own, the worship of me as a god, then I'll say that you, you're in there trying to eat people. That's kind of what I get out of it, okay? So you've got this early, this early precursor to this, all right? Uh, so it says here, Appion's claim likely re- reflects already circulating attitudes towards Jews. A similar claims are made by Posidonius and Apollonius Molon in the first century BCE. And also Socrates Scholasticus never in the fifth century, I guess AD, reported that in Drunken Frolic, a group of Jews bound a Christian child to a cross in mockery of the death of Christ and scourged him until he died. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is something we talked about last time on Paranoid Styles. The differences, the animosity as the Jews and the Christians begin to kind of separate from each other. You've got a lot of this um, 
kind of going back and forth. There's supposedly things in the Talmud about, you know, about Jesus, you know, that are pretty bad. And so you've got this kind of propaganda against each other that's going back and forth. All right. So this is where this kind of comes from. So the first one that we're going to talk about, the first case, this starts in England, really. The classic blood libel motif starts in England. Um, It doesn't start really on the continent itself. And it's interesting that it starts there, that this is really like it's something that from the English world. Yeah. Okay. And it's going to something that's going to be translated not only to the continent, but later on it's going to come over here as well because, you know, we started out as an English colony. And uh, the first one of these is the supposed murder of this child named William of Norwich. Okay, there's actually a famous picture of this. You can probably find it in a lot of different books. It's actually a picture of them bleeding out William of Norwich and taking his blood, putting it in in cups and, and putting it in the matzo balls. So he's found dead with these stab wounds in the woods. This comes from this guy named Thomas of Monmouth, all right? And Thomas of Monmouth is kind of just like this official. He's a monk, a Benedictine monk, and he is relating what he believes happens to this William of Norwich kid. And what he says is that every year they there's this international council of Jews it sounds really familiar. Yeah. Okay. I think I right. Heard this one before. Uh, but but this is the OG stuff. This is the original stuff. So this is from 1144. All right. This is way before the protocols of Zion. This is the this demo is, tape. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so they they get together. They choose a country of the child that's going to be killed during Easter. Now, why does he choose Easter? Because Easter and the Passover are roughly around the same time. Mm-hmm. This is the, they're not celebrating Easter, right? But he says that um, there's this Jewish prophecy that says that killing a Christian child each year will ensure ensure that the Jews will be restored to the Holy Land. All right. So what does that mean? Well, the, the Jews want to go back to Zion, basically. Go back to the Holy Land. That's what they believe will happen. Now, Thomas of Monmouth is saying that, well, they got to do this every year because they believe that to get back to the Holy Land, that God will send it back to the Holy Land if they kill a Christian kid and they drink his blood. And Which put it, it in the kind of sounds like a European pagan regenerative type of thing right, to me. Right, right. So is there a little bit of that in there too? Maybe. Um, you know, is he pulling from probably witchcraft things that he's, that he's, that he's heard? Um, is it getting mixed together in his mind? And so England gets lucky in 1144 and England is the country that's, that's gets chosen for this. Okay. And supposedly the big Sanhedrin gets the Jewish community and and says, okay, you guys in Norwich, you guys got to do the ritualistic killing of a child this year. Okay, you guys got to get this done. And so they abduct William, but not only do they abduct him, they also crucify him, right? So the, here we go with the this is the this is the Jewish guilt stuff. Okay? The Jews killed Jesus, they crucified Christ. Doesn't matter the fact that, you know, that if they hadn't, there would have been no salvation, but that's a whole other issue. That's theological story. You know, uh, but this is the kind of you know logical fallacies that come out of this stuff, right? Um, 
what happens is I assume that they found the body or, or maybe Thomas just made this shit up. I mean, that's possible too. But one very strange thing that happens, and we're going to talk about another case here in just a second, is that these legends are going to be turned into like these kind of cult things. So there becomes this like cult of William of Norwich, uh, where these pilgrims, he's a martyr now because the Jews killed and pilgrims are going to come to the church and they're going to put offerings and stuff like that. Okay. Which, you know, the church was probably fine with that because they probably got some, you know, money or kind or, you know, something like that. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, so there's a tendency for these victims to be uh, basically canonized in a certain way by the community. All right, so these are victims of this evil Jewish plot, and they are basically martyrs. These little saints and martyrs, okay? It continues. You've got these other accusations that happen in other towns all across England at the time. There's little St. Hugh of Lincoln, who's just another one of these children that is killed and is the exact same thing. Um, After little St. Hugh, there were these trials and executions of Jews all throughout England. It doesn't say whether or not in 1144 with that very first supposed blood libel that there were actually any trials or any executions. But by the time this is a few years after, and I think about 30 or 40 years later, and um, the king, you know, makes sure that there's some executions that happen. Right. So now it's almost becoming a a tradition. And and this is stuff that's actually written in English literature. Chaucer writes about this. Okay, later on. That's that's a couple hundred years later. So there is existing literature in, in great English literature that refers to this stuff. All right. And this is going to get so bad that uh, eventually in the year 1290, the King Edward I, Longshanks, if you're a, if you're a Braveheart fan, he actually is going to sign a law expelling the Jews from England. And... 
they're only going to come back under Oliver Cromwell in about 1650 or so. Okay, so for a good over 300 years, there are no Jews in England because of the primarily because of these blood libel accusations. All right, and what what leads to this is this little Saint Hugh of Lincoln? Okay, this is about twelve fifty five. This is actually under Edward the First, father King Henry the Third. I'll read this from the Book of Knowledge entry. Eight year old Hugh disappeared at Lincoln on thirty first July twelve fifty five. His body was probably discovered on twenty ninth August in a well. A Jew named Copen or Coppen confessed to involvement. His he confessed to John of Lexington, a servant of the crown and relative of the Bishop of Lincoln. He confessed that the boy had been crucified by the Jews who had assembled at Lincoln for that purpose. King Henry the Third, who had reached Lincoln at the beginning of October, had Copen executed in ninety one of the Jews of Lincoln's sees and sent up to London where 18 of them were executed. Uh, the rest were pardoned at the intercession of the Franciscans or Dominicans. All right. And like I said, 1290, the Jews are expelled from England under Henry's son, Edward I. Uh, and it says 1657 is when they're actually allowed back mm-hmm. into England. Uh, and you asked a question. So if you think that's bad, it gets even worse because this hysteria is going to spread into the continent which is natural. Um, And this is all still going to be based all on the work of Thomas of Monmouth, who wrote about the first case about William of Norwich. In 1171, this is the first recorded instance in continental Europe. This is in France, in Blois. I believe that's how you pronounce it. BL, my French is probably really atrocious. Experienced accusations of blood libel, which resulted in the massacre of most of the Jewish community of the town. 33 men, women, and children were burned to death on May 29th of that year. A Jewish man was accused of throwing an unknown boy's body into the river Lore. The body was actually never found. So this is actually uh, something that is from like a unfounded rumor Yeah, that there was a child that fell into... No that one's even missing the river. a kid or anything. Nobody's even seen him. Nobody knows what you know what what's really going on. It's mass okay. hysteria. Um, and of course, there when this begins to be written about in Europe, they're basically copying Thomas of Monmouth and saying that um, that they're using the blood for congregations. And you've got this grand council that is orchestrating all this from behind the scenes. So just the same the same stuff in. 1235, so half a century later or so, Fulda, Germany, this is in Western Germany, Jews were actually accused of the murder of five boys. Now, they did find the bodies on this one, supposedly. Um, Jews were accused of the murders, and 34 of them were burned to death with the help of some crusaders that were just passing through the town. So these guys are on their way to the Holy Land to fight the Saracens. Probably to fight up. They're all fired up, and you might as well just kill some Jews while you're there. Uh, I found this particular case interesting because I felt like it was kind of analogous in a way to the West Memphis Three case, Mm -hmm. which if you guys are familiar with that case, basically three young boys were found murdered in a river in West Memphis, Arkansas. This is in the early 1990s. Um, And three older teenagers were accused of the crime. One confessed, two did not. But it's kind of just the similar way of you're looking for a scapegoat in the community. Right. You know, this is 
this is again and again some weird need to find these people that did a heinous act that you can't explain. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a really great HBO documentary called Mind Over Murder about this these six people that were wrongfully accused of murder of, a, of an elderly lady in the early 1980s, um, which is something you see again and again, people wrongfully accused, false confessions, these type of things. Right. But is it a way for a community to basically get rid of their riffraff, so to speak? Um, so I found that, that pretty interesting. And of course there's much more, I mean, they're, they're basically executing these people. They're putting them in their synagogues and burning them alive and finding any kind of excuse to make this happen. So you've got a much more horrible response than what the crime actually was. Okay. But there's all this hysteria going on. Well, did you hear like, in, you know, these, I mean, I bet the Jews did this because you know, there's this grand council that, you know, I bet we got our town got picked this year. The, our Jews got picked this year to kill a kid, and you know, so that they can go back this to the Holy entire Land. Entire mythology yeah. that's being created, right? Yeah, right. So, you know, I read this. You know, Thomas of Monmouth. You know, brother. He's, Probably not a whole lot of people reading at this point. We're not. Yeah, but I'm sure all you had to do was just one monk saying, yeah. "Well, it's Brother Thomas in, yeah. in England." He says, "Oh, I mean, think about what that would have meant back then." Yeah. something being in writing oh so yeah well yeah it's authori- it's authoritative it's authoritative it's in writing so well, a lot of shit it's authority and it's writing is authoritative for a lot of people right now too this is going to persist uh there's a lot of medieval popes that actually had a lot to say about it um at the time and they kind of had different ideas of what they felt should be the course of action there were three that named here in this article pope innocent the fourth Pope Gregory the Tenth, Pope Paul the Third, actually four, Pope Benedict the the Fifteenth. I won't go into all of this, but some said that um, some of them were very sympathetic. I mean, Pope Innocent the Fourth, he said in twelve forty seven, he wrote also the certain of the clergy and princes, nobles and great lords of your cities and dioceses have falsely devised certain godless plans against the Jews, unjustly depriving them by force of their property and appropriating it themselves. They falsely charge them with dividing up among themselves on the Passover, the heart of a murdered boy. In their malice, they ascribe every murder, wherever it chanced to occur, to the Jews. And on the grounds of these and other fabrications, they are filled with rage against them, rob them of their, apost- of their possessions without any formal accusation, without confession, and without legal trial and conviction, contrary to the privileges granted to them by the apostolic see. So it is our pleasure that they shall not be disturbed. We ordain that ye behave towards them in a friendly and kind manner. Whenever any unjust attacks upon them come under your notice, redress their injuries and do not suffer them to be visited in the future by similar tribulations. So basically the church's attitude is like, well, we, we know these people are damned, right? You know, but we, we there's some weird thing in, 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 the, in some Christian theology that some of the Jews got to stay around, you know, for Jesus to come back or something and don't kill them all, please, you know, just stop. And then Gregory the 10th is the last one that I'll read here. He, he says he issued a letter in which criticized the practice of blood libels and forbade arrest and persecution of Jews based on a blood libel. Unless we do not believe they be caught in the commission of the crime. So, you know, unless you actually see him do it, don't, you know, right. if you actually see it, don't, you know, until then, so we're seeing if you this, catch them in the act. Yeah, we're we're seeing the the populist nature 
of this really versus the authorities now, and especially the religious authorities. Yeah. So this is really a populist phenomenon that's discouraged, um, but it's just becoming ingrained in these cultures at this point. This is going to become a big thing and it's going to continue and it's going to persist. And I'm going to, I'm going to go through um, some of these after medieval blood libel accusations, but this becomes a big thing and it's still a very big thing in the Muslim world. Now, um, these accusations, it's much bigger there. And than it is in like Western Europe. Cause I mean, I guess after the enlightenment, you know, and then you got more modern racist anti-Semitism, which is even more horrible. But you know, it replaced, but it re- it also recycled some of these memes too. Right. But it wasn't in a Christian context. It wasn't in a Christian context necessarily. The Orthodox world has also been big on this too, as we're we're going to find out. So just some of these things. I mean, this continues all the way into the, the time of the Renaissance, all the way into like the 17th century. Um, just some interesting cases here in Wren near Innsbruck. This is Germany. Or actually, I think maybe what's well, now Austria, but at the time it was all Germany. Boy named Andreas Ochsner, also known as Andre von Wren, was said to have been brought by Jewish merchants and cruelly murdered by them in a forest near the city, his blood being carefully collected in vessels. The accusation of drawing off the blood without murder was not made until the beginning of the 17th century when the cult was founded. The older inscription in the Church of Wren dating from 1575 is distorted by fabulous embellishment. So there's actually this inscription in the church there in that town that is that echoes this this blood libel accusation. And it really picks up steam in the Russian Orthodox Church. And this gets into more like the East. Like I mentioned, um, there's one famous case um, in the 20th century. And this is something that causes a lot of problems in the Russian Empire. We'll, we'll, we'll get to this as we continue to go on. I mean, you have these, these massive pogroms, that, which is this... Basically, you know, people getting together and just burning down a Jewish town and, you know, um, forcing people out of their community. Um, there's this, um, what is now, you could call it, you know, Kiev, 1913 or 1910. Uh, Jewish factory manager Menachem Bindel Bayless was accused of murdering 13-year-old Andrei Yushinsky, a Christian child, and using his blood to make matzahs. He was acquitted by an all-Christian jury after a sensational trial in 1913. This is one in in New York, in the United States. In 1928, the Jews of Messina, New York, were falsely accused of kidnapping and killing a Christian girl in the Messina blood libel. Uh, One case that I would add to this is, even though it is not a blood libel accusation, it is very similar, is the case of Leo Frank from the early 20th century in Atlanta, Georgia. And we'll probably come back around to this, especially when we talk about like the foundations of the KKK and um, the racism in the United States and these, you know, these, these kind of racist secret societies. Leo Frank was a young Jewish man that was accused of killing a young girl that worked at the pencil factory that his father owned. And Leo 
worked as more like kind of in an executive position in the pencil factory. The young girl was found dead. Her name was Mary Fagan, P-H-A-G-A-N. And she became this cause in Atlanta. This young girl that was supposedly murdered by this young Jewish man. And there was actually a secret society called the Knights of Mary Fagan. This happened in 1913. Leo Frank is uh, convicted of the murder. I mean, he say that he was wrongly convicted, that it was another man that did this. In 1915? The life historians believe it was another man that did this. And the trial, this went on for two years, okay? This whole saga. Uh, he was sentenced to execution. The governor of the state of Georgia, actually, he didn't acquit him, but he reduced the punishment down to life imprisonment. Well, the Knights of Mary Fagan decided to take things into their own hands, and they pulled Leo Frank out of the Fulton County Jail, drove him to the town of what was then the town of Marietta, and they lynched him on August 17th, 1915, which was, which that's my birthday. And... 1915 is also the year in Atlanta where the the year in Atlanta where on Stone Mountain the second KKK is founded. So the Leo Frank case, even though it's not a blood libel case, but you do have the elements. You have a dead child, in this case a girl, which usually in the blood libel cases it's a, it's a boy, mm-hmm. but in this case it's a girl. You have a Jewish individual that is charged with it. And you have execution by a mob, essentially, of this man. So this blood libel stuff was probably all in these guys' heads. And, you know, this is 1915 in the United States. There's a lot of racial tension between African-Americans and white Americans. This is the same year, birth of a nation. But this new KKK is uh, 100% Americanist, as they described it. And it is also anti uh, Jewish, anti-Roman Catholic. Yeah, anti, yeah, anti-Roman Catholic. Which I'll tell personal family story if you don't mind. Uh, my mother, she grew up in Fort Payne, Alabama, and this was right during the whole civil rights movement. Okay, there's a lot going on. I mean, she told me that there's uh, Wallace was selling hot dogs in, in the. Uh, on the, in the in the town square and shit like that when he was campaigning and yeah okay you guys know about George Wallace um, segregation now segregation forever uh, so there's a lot of racial tension going on well you know my mother is Greek well she's born here but you know family is Greek so they're Greek Orthodox right well the KKK didn't understand the difference nor did they care. Uh, so they put a cross in my grandfather's yard. Okay. Because the Ku Klux Klan didn't just hate group black people. It's also immigrants. Okay. Anyone who wasn't 100% American. That's right. That's right. But that's something we'll get to later. But, you know, it's like, like I said, I can't help but think that there's a similarity to the Leo Frank case to a lot of the blood libel accusations. And so I'll conclude, I guess, with... Blood libel as the common trope in a lot of conspiracy theories. I mean, um, even if it's not the the Jews doing it, right, right. I mean, Serfio mentioned the satanic panic. I mean, you've got the same thing. You have children being kidnapped by Mm -hmm. 
this cabal of Satanists that are probably told by Satan that Satan is central control to find a kid and uh, sacrifice them to Lucifer. Uh, this happened, th- th- this was something that was huge in the 1980s and in- even into the 90s. In fact, the West Memphis Three, you could say, was kind of w- was influenced that, by yeah. Satanic Panic and... Uh, you had supposedly Satanist experts that testified at the trial. Um, this became a huge thing. And the idea that they were kidnapping children or at times even um, impregnating young girls and having them give birth to child sacrifices. It's the same thing. You just it's a, it's a mad lib. You remove the Jews and you put Satanists. Yeah. And now we deal with something like QAnon which starts with Pizzagate, and the same thing is there. Instead of the Jews necessarily, it's the elites that are killing children and sexually abusing them, in some cases killing them. Mm-hmm. And it's blood libel stuff is really kind of, the, it's, it, it is, it's a medieval conspiracy theory. And I think a lot of this is like the most primal kind of conspiracy theories that revolve around anxieties about children. Yeah, right. And our obsession that shows up in pop culture, still we are absolutely obsessed with occult murder, with ritualistic murder and ideas that, you know, shadowy groups kill people ritualistically for some kind of spiritual aim. It's just, it's everywhere. Even if it's not some kind of blood libel thing, just the general influence of obsession around occult murder is like quarter of uh, movies and television. Right. Yeah, and it's it's sensationalist too. Eventually, we'll get to something like the Taxel hoax, which also fed off of this in 19th century France, even though it removed removed the Jews as as the reason why. Even though probably some read between the lines. Yeah, and we're gonna see these like anti-Semitic tropes get commingled with anti-occultism conspiracies, anti-communist conspiracies uh, that say that you know the jews are ultimately the architects of western occultism western esoteric tradition and all that is in that and uh communism and the precursors to that in the in the revolutionary movements of the uh, french revolution we are going to continue to see the impact of of anti-semitism but this is definitely the most populist cultural tradition of that that we're going to see well we hope that you guys enjoy these um these are a little shorter than the normal episodes but uh there's a lot of history packed in these and i'm hoping pretty soon we're going to get kind of past the history stuff and move into more i guess recent history and we can kind of more explore a lot of these um these concepts the next episode what i want to do is start laying the groundwork for the freemasons to come into the whole milieu Uh which i want to flesh out a little bit more about gnosticism and go into the kind of like the albigensian crusade which is something that I, i didn't even mention i wanted to try to do it in this episode but i felt like the blood libel material was enough uh but the albigensian crusade is this crusade that occurs um in the middle of the 1200s and is against a Christian heresy uh, that had very Gnostic overtones and how that influences, well, supposedly influences like the Templars and some of their ideas. And we'll talk about the Templars too. Yeah. Then we'll do 
five episodes on the Templars. Uh, I don't know if we're going to do that. All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoy these. We are going to do a little something similar into some things we're going to explore later on on these Paranoid Styles on the Patreon. Uh, Check out the the Patreon for uh, some of our exploration of uh, some John Birch Society propaganda and memorabilia that Adam came across. So you guys should enjoy that over at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We'll talk about that on for the Patreon, so that's why you got to join. And strange uh, realities, guys. Please secure your tickets and lodging. If you're planning on coming to Nashville, we'd love to have you. Everything should be updated for you to see at strangerealitiesconference.com. That's right. October 14th through the 16th. Come party with us in Nashville if you can't. We understand, but uh, you will be missing out on all the live action. But uh, there will be there is a streaming side to this, and that is thirty dollars. And you can spend the weekend watching it, or you can go back and watch it at your leisure as well. But to come to Nashville, uh, the tickets are seventy dollars. That's a really great price for uh, what is looking like about thirteen speakers and three workshops, and that gets you into all that. So. Uh, consider coming to Nashville, guys. And if you're in Nashville, we'd love to see you there as well. If you're already here, you have no excuse. Well, guys, we will be back uh, next week with some more Conspiranormal, but uh, we'll see you in a month on Paranoid Styles. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.